I see you, AAC, so see your way onto the show. Welcome to A Bowl Full of Chips, where the next few weeks we'll focus our attention to the rising programs of college football. We're going to talk about the Group of Five conferences starting this week with the AAC, that's the American Athletic Conference, and hope to put more of a spotlight on these lovable laborers, not losers, laborers. Listen to that carefully. I am Chappie, the guy to give the Group of Five a group hug, and with me as always is, it's nothing personal, it's just bipness. Bip, high five, my brother. Just call me AAC, AAC Slater, Preppy, because I'm ready to talk some American Athletic Conference football. You were picking my brain, man. I was thinking about that just before the show. I was thinking, how could we segue <laughs> the AAC into a Slater reference? So thanks for taking care of that for us, Bip. We'll break out the acid wash jeans and uh, <laughs> grow that uh, curly mullet out, chappy. <laughs> That's right. So don't go wrestle for Iowa. Come and wrestle at one of these fine American Athletic Conference programs. <laughs> That's right. Well, as the kids like to say these days, let's go. Today we've got <laughs> AAC review. So we're going to look back at arguably the strongest group of five conference that's out there, Bip. So here on A Bowl Full of Chips, we bring football closer. We want to thank you for listening. Bip and I, we're glad that you're here with us again. And if you're here for the first time, trust that we're going to bring you exactly what UCF brings to the table every year. And that's something worth tuning in for. And one that may not have the resources that the bigger podcasts do, but certainly enough talent to compete and quite possibly pull off the upset. Now, UCF stands for You Can Follow. Best way you can make this podcast even better is to interact with us via Twitter or email. Let us know what you like and what you would like to hear. You can find us on Twitter. I am at champion underscore lit. And I am at BFC BIP. And if email is more your thing, you can also email us bowlfullofchips at gmail.com. So now that we've got that underway, Bip and I here at A Bowl Full of Chips, we love college football. We know that. We love to laugh. And since we're going to talk about uh, the group of five teams that maybe don't get the love that others do, we're, we love the underdogs. So Bip, let's, let's hear from you. What are some of the classic underdog stories that re- resonate with you? Rudy. 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 <laughs> of course, I got to throw that shout out there. Um, however legitimate the movie may or may not be, one of the best uh, underdog movies of all time. But let me go into a couple of my favorite uh, college football ones that are uh, away from the silver screen there, Chappie. And uh, first and foremost, uh, I want to talk about the App State team that uh, beat Michigan, and I believe it was 2007. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that game and just being in complete disbelief um, and even going down to the wire when Michigan had the ball and was driving at the end. I thought, oh boy, here we go. Michigan's going to eke this one out and uh, you know go on to a successful season. That field goal gets blocked, and I just was watching in amazement. Couldn't believe what was happening at that time, as I had never seen anything like it in college football before. Similar to, you know, and it's very apt right now to a lot of the March Madness stuff that's going to be happening very soon. For sure. Um, A few of the... uh, the, And and to cut you off there, Bip, but uh, I don't know if you saw on the Big Ten Network, but ironically, that was the first year that the Big Ten Network kicked off. And um, they did a cool piece on it with uh, when the Big Ten Network celebrated their 10-year anniversary. Dave Rebson, a Northwestern grad, by the way, uh, did a great job of talking about how he was put as really the 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 lead anchor for that show and how um, that was the first game that they televised. And all of a sudden, you know, it's getting into the third and fourth quarter and everyone in the truck is saying, oh, my gosh, we could be making history here. And what what a better way to or what, what about the best way to kick off this network to have a historic and landmark upset. And then it actually happened. And, and he talked about yeah. the same thing that you did where it was like, Oh man, I mean, it was a great game, but it looks like Michigan's going to put it away and it will just be <laughs> one of those uh, things that are earmarked for the rest of the year. And then everybody forgets about, but Nope, they blocked the kick. They returned it. Uh, they, they took it to uh, down to zeros and we had what we had. I know that is still something that burns into Michigan fans history. And I think many of them have sought psychological help to try and, brainwash it out of their minds but uh nonetheless <laughs> all of us who are not bleeding maize and blue we certainly remember 
Right, right. Um, few of the the individual underdog stories that I like. Uh, you know, there's always it's always cool when you see a walk on that becomes a a star in the college ranks. So players like Santana Moss, J.J. Watt, and of course Baker Mayfield. Um, some of the better stories across the country mm-hmm. um, at any point in history in college football. And one of my personal favorite uh, underdog stories was uh, at, now. Boise State wasn't a, a true underdog going into the season, but when their BCS game against Oklahoma, yeah. that was one of the best uh, bowl games that I've ever seen. Yep. You had the hook and lateral. Uh, you had the Statue of Liberty play that sealed the victory. Um, and then obviously you had the the afterward um, celebration with uh, Ian Johnson getting down on one knee and, and proposing. I mean, it, you couldn't have really scripted it any better if you were a, a Hollywood executive right. uh, for how that game turned out. So one of the cooler things. So uh, those are some of the some of the, my favorite underdog stories. Now, Chappie, I, I understand that uh, you have a team that's near and dear to your heart and uh, someone that uh, some team that you're writing a book about. Am I right? Yep. So um, the 1995 Northwestern Wildcats, that – they are the reason why I am bleeding purple as a Northwestern fan today. That, to me, still goes down as the greatest underdog story in all of sports, in my opinion. Now, some people will throw out the 1980 Olympic hockey team. Uh, some people talk about the Boise State season of 07 and others that you could mention in there as well, the 62 Mets. But um, in, in the book that I'm writing titled Champion Underdog, so this is a shameless plug, but um, I, <laughs> I, I go into detail about why this team deserves at least a, a top three nomination, if not the the top nomination for greatest underdog story in sports history because of the monumental uh, hurdles that they had to overcome and all the obstacles and the adversity that they faced that season with a, a, a tragedy and a death within the program with um, record-breaking heat in the summertime for conditioning, which uh, had taken the lives of almost 100 Chicago citizens to um, injuries to you know all sorts of things. So more on that book as it develops. But uh, yeah, that's, that's something that I'm working on and, and kind of got me more into this uh, college football writing and broadcasting thing bip so thanks for the plug and uh we'll keep you tuned on that but yeah that's that to me is the epitome epitome of uh college football underdogs and underdogs in sports in general so um perfect lead into our talk of the american athletic conference today because some of those fans down in orlando florida don't seem to like that underdog title bip yeah, and and I'm not uh, exactly sure why they don't um, necessarily care for it. I, I I get the the disrespect factor, but I think it's kind of cool if you have a team that's labeled as an underdog that yeah. continually exceeds expectations. I mean, uh, Mark D'Antonio and his Michigan State Spartans have fueled um, a couple uh, trips to some pretty prestigious bowl games uh, yeah. off of that very fact. And if you can get your your players to to buy into it and then the outside meet you know the the national media um their opinions and and their talk and chatter doesn't really matter much um in my thoughts and i can pretty much guarantee you that if you polled uh, a million college football fans who do you who would you rather root for alabama or UCF, I'm willing to bet about 70% of them would choose UCF because of the fact that they're the underdog, because of the fact that they are not this dynasty that is just winning and winning and winning and winning in a way that some people maybe question how they got there and, and how things are stacked unfairly in their favor. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I would relish the underdog role. And and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy rooting for Northwestern every year is because of the fact that they are not traditionally looked upon as a team that is going to compete and be a clear-cut winner every year, but but somehow they get it done and they do it through good old-fashioned hard work and, and effort, which is something that sadly is, is being lost in our society today. So it's good to see teams from conferences and programs like this that are getting it done that way. Yeah. Speaking of hard work and honor, we do want to take a moment here in in the light of covering the American Athletic Conference. We want to honor our military personnel, our first responders, basically anybody in charge of securing the safety of all of us and our loved ones. So that includes 
EMTs, police, firefighters, like we mentioned, all branches of the military. Thank you for your service. Thanks for all the things that you do for not nearly enough pay is what you should be getting. So Bip and I, we tip our hats off to you and we appreciate you. Absolutely. Much respect. So we know there's a lot of college football podcasts out there and we thank you for taking time to listen to us. We ourselves have a few select podcasts on our list, but we have our go-tos that we knock out first, and we hope that a bowl full of chips is or becomes that podcast for you. We're not just two guys talking college football. We do a little more research than most do. We cover the entire realm and give love to both the privileged programs, but also those programs that may go underappreciated. We'll give you news, opinions, humor, and real life. We're energized by any and all commentary you like to engage in because we love love this game, and we crave the conversation. Like those coaches out there, we want you to join our program. Commit to us. Sign your letter of intent by subscribing, sharing, liking, and reviewing us online. But most importantly, uh, just tuning in, listening, giving yourselves the pleasure of, of hearing college football talk, regardless of who it comes from. But we hope you choose us. So, Bip, it's AAC review time. Let's get right into it, shall we? Yes, sir. All right. Well, we're going to run down the conference standings here first. Now, the American Athletic Conference, for those who are not grossly familiar, is split into two divisions of six teams apiece. So you have the East and you have the West. So starting with the East, that's the division that the famed UCF Knights are found them found themselves in. They finished this year at 12-1, and 8-0 in the conference, and they had some exciting games to get to that point, and we'll hit on those later on in the podcast. Temple came in second at eight and five with seven and one in the conference. Cincinnati was third in the AAC East at eleven and two, but they finished six and two in the conference. South Florida behind them at seven and six, three and five in AAC play. East Carolina, the Pirates, and Greenville were three and nine, finishing one and seven in conference. And then down at the bottom of the East was the Yukon Huskies at one and eleven, zero oh and eight. But uh, the positive for them is the high numbers that they gave up on defense. So even though they struck a goose egg in the, in the standings, the, the number of points that were given up on that defensive side surely was uh, on the other end. Over <laughs> in the West, Bip, we had Memphis coming out on top there at 8-6 and six overall, 5-3 and three in the division. Houston followed behind them, losing the head-to-head battle in Thanksgiving weekend. A great game uh, for Memphis, not so great for Houston. They finished 8-5, 5-3 and five, five and overall. Tulane came in third at 7-6. and six. They were also 5-3. and three. SMU was fourth at 5-7 and seven and 4-4 and four and four in the conference. Navy came in at fifth, uh, going 3-10, 2-6 <laughs> in conference play. And then Tulsa finished 3-9 overall with a 2-6 conference mark. In the AAC championship game, UCF played Memphis in a rematch of their regular season duel, and UCF came from behind and came out on top with a 56-41 victory, sending them to a New Year's Six Bowl, which unfortunately for them and their fans, they lost to a pretty good LSU team. So those are the conference standings. So Bip, let's get right into who was a pleasant surprise out of the AAC this year. Well, Chappie, my pleasant surprise is the Cincinnati Bearcats. And this is a, a team that they started off 6-0 and with two score margins against every opponent except for Ohio. They lose, to, they lose in overtime against Temple, which at the time seemed like a how could that happen type of thing for Cincinnati. But as we saw towards the end of the season, Temple was a, a, a tough football team. Um, so you can, so you can get past that one a little bit. They win their next three games and have a, a big matchup against undefeated UCF. They end up losing that game 38, 13, wasn't really even that close. Uh, but they finished their season with two wins, including their, their bowl victory over, a um, Virginia tech team. That was a pretty impressive victory. They actually finished the country 10th in the nation with a, in scoring margin with a plus 230 scoring margin. And they did this with a combination of both great offense and even better defense. They finished 23rd in the country in both yards per game and points per game offensively. They were also 7th in third down conversion and 11th in time of possession. Defensively is where they really shined. They finished uh, 8th in yards per game given up and 7th in points per game given up. They were 5th in third down conversions allowed, 3rd in first downs allowed, and 6th in the country in rushing yards allowed per game. Uh, doing all this uh, offensively was with freshman quarterback Desmond Ritter, who threw for over 2,400 yards, 
uh, had a 20 to five touchdown interception ratio while completing 62.4% of his passes and running the ball for them. Michael Warren was equally impressive as he really broke out in uh, his second year with the Bearcats rushing for over 1300 yards, average 5.4 yards per per carry and uh, hit pay dirt 19 times on the ground. Um, Khalil Lewis led the Bearcats with 782 yards receiving and nine touchdowns. And defensively, um, the Bearcats had four, um, I'm sorry, five all AC, all AAC selections, uh, led by someone who I think should have gotten a lot more recognition throughout the year, but was overshadowed by uh, fellow defensive tackle Ed Oliver. And that's Cortez Broughton. Um, he finished the year with 50 total tackles, 16 and a half tackles for loss, five and a half sacks, uh, also had five passes defended and two forced fumbles. Um, so that kind of production, especially the tackles for loss and, um, the total tackles from the defensive tackle position was really outstanding. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and going, coming from, uh, two or back to back four and eight, uh, seasons, uh, to going 11 and two this year, Luke Fickle did an outstanding job. And, uh, I think that it was a, an easy, um, pleasant surprise for me. Um, in the AAC, but how about you, Chappie? Who came away with your uh, pleasant surprise? That's me <laughs> clapping for you, Biff. You you hit on almost literally everything that I was going to say about my pleasant surprise, the Cincinnati Bearcats. So yeah, I'm just going to um, give bullet points here. So only the third 11 win season in UC's 133 year history. I mean, you think about that. That means that they essentially would have had a an eleven win season every forty years. Um, that's uh, that's if you're lucky twice in your lifetime, and and that's if you see them at a at a young age. So um, great job by by Luke Fickle this year. Like you said, back to back four and eight seasons, um, and you know they were picked to finish fourth in the AAC East, and you know they ranked. They were ranked four weeks out of the season. They got as high as number 19. And, you know, coming into the season, Luke Fickle was 10 and 15 as a head coach. You know, like we mentioned, four and eight in his first year out in uh, in Cincinnati. And, um, you know, maybe people were not expecting him, especially when there was a little bit of uncertainty at quarterback. I mean, they had Hayden Moore to start the season. But then when you see that Desmond Ritter uh, takes over in the UCLA game, and they won that game out in the Rose Bowl. and you were starting to wonder, well, was that a condition of UC being really good or was that a condition of UCLA being really not that good? So, uh, I mean, 11 wins, I don't care where you're playing, who you're playing, what mm-hmm. team you are, that's that's an accomplishment. So, yeah, definitely an easy pick for the most pleasant surprise out of the AC or AAC. Hey, Chappie, let me ask you real quick. Um, who's the other coach in Cincinnati history that had the other two 11-win seasons? That would be the famed red-cheeked wonder out in South Bend. You're Mr. Brian Kelly. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he also had a 10-win <laughs> season. And then the only other coach to have 10-win seasons was Butch Jones. So fire up chips. Yeah, fire up chips and uh, get ready for the hate mail from uh, volunteer fans. <laughs> I'm sure that they would lo- lovingly send him and buy plane tickets for him to go back to Cincinnati and stay the hell away from Knoxville. <laughs> yeah, right. All we need to do is mention Lane Kiffin and we'll uh, complete their complete <laughs> hatred. Yeah, right. Um, just an honorable mention for Pleasant Surprise was the Temple Owls. Now, Temple was pretty much almost a clone of Cincinnati. And by the way, Temple beat the Bearcats head to head. And we'll yeah. talk about that in our top games this year. But, you know, you could make an argument for Temple being a pleasant surprise because after the first two weeks, they lost to FCS opponent Villanova. Now, granted, Villanova was a pretty good team in the FCS level. I believe they made it to the FCS playoffs. But they dropped that game at Lincoln Financial 17-19. to Then they lost to Buffalo, a MAC team, also at Lincoln Financial the following week. So if you're a Temple fan after September 8th, you're thinking, geez, are we going to are we gonna do anything this year? Are we even going to go to a bowl? Who is this uh, Jeff Collins at, at our head coach, and, and do we really want him here? But then they came out and uh, kind of dominated the rest of the way. Their only conference loss was to number 9 UCF out at Spectrum Stadium in Orlando, and they only lost that game by eight points. So this was a Temple team that – did some good things on offense, but even better on defense. Kind of the same blueprint that you diagrammed for Cincinnati, Bip. So Temple was ninth in the nation in defensive yards per play allowed. They were 24th in total sacks. They were 14th in 
uh, defensive pass efficiency. And they had one of my favorite corners with one of my favorite names, um, Rock Yasin, uh-huh. cornerback yes. for uh, for the Owls. And and I loved watching him play. And it's a shame that he took this long to get to the Division One level. Really cool story coming from a, a program at. Um, I want to say it's Assumption College. I could be wrong. Uh, I might be getting players mixed up. But nonetheless, it was a program that folded. And so he was kind of scrambling to find any sort of program. And Jeff Collins and his staff got wind of him, saw tape, and said, uh, you know, we've got a spot for you here at Temple if you'd like to come and play. And he was really, in my opinion, the shutdown corner in the AAC on defense this year. So um, there's going to be a, a lucky team that picks him up in the NFL draft coming up this next month, Bip. So um, honorable mention and, and mad props to Temple, who, by the way, has my pick for best uniforms in the American Athletic Conference. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be getting into them a little bit later, just a little bit of a tease for one of our, our next uh, categories. But I like that as well. They were They were in the running with Cincinnati for me, for sure. Ooh, a tease, you saucy man. You. <laughs> well, let's get to disappointments. And and I hate to say this because I really do love this program, and I always have since I was a young a young chappy, um, and that's the Navy midshipmen. Now, mm-hmm. I really like Ken, Ken Niamatololo, and I like the Navy program. I love what they stand for. We already touched upon our, our mad respect for servicemen and women, but uh, what the hell happened with Navy this year? Yeah. Um, they uh, they finished with only three wins, which is really absurd when you think about what Ken Kenny has has done there as head coach with the the Middies. They were picked to finish third in the West, so they weren't really pegged to do anything lofty this year. But to finish really second from the bottom was much lower than most people's expectations. Um, they even got three first place votes in the in the media poll at the beginning of the year. So when all the AAC coaches and when the media got together and they they wrote down who they thought was going to finish where, Navy actually had some votes for being the first place team out of that West. Um, their defense was just really bad this year. Looking across the board, Navy finished in the bottom third of 130 FBS teams in five categories. So that included scoring. They were 103rd. They were 119th in yards per play allowed. They were dead last in sacks, so they really couldn't get to the quarterback at all. Um, Defensive pass efficiency, they were 118th, and that's kind of understandable because when you're at Navy, you're not really going against top-flight passing quarterbacks in practice, so it's hard to simulate on the scout team somebody who's going to throw the ball efficiently on you. So we could forgive them maybe for that one, but those other ones, I mean, these guys are tough. They work hard at Navy, so to see their defense uh, slip that far down was a little bit disheartening. Um, you know, other things about them, they were about 80 yards under their rushing average for the last five years combined. So, um, normally you're, you're expecting to see Navy finish in, uh, you know, with, with loftier marks and they were fifth in the NCAA in rushing this year, but even still, that was a drop from where they've been in the past. Um, and I was a little bit, I kind of raised my eyebrows at the end of the year or this offseason when we saw that Ken Niamatololo has taken another role um, as president of the Mormon church in the chapter out in yeah, Napa. I saw that. So um, you got to wonder, you know, was, was that something that was in the works throughout the season and wh- how much of a distraction was that? I mean, if you look at the, the record and if you look at their statistics, even hardcore Navy fans have to wonder, you know, was this something that was really getting in the way? And is this something that's going to continue to be a distraction for him as we, as we move forward? So, but I've got faith in Kenny. I think that he is a, is a great coach. I think he can bounce back. Um, and you know, maybe the other thing was his name was certainly thrown out there as one of the top candidates in the off season coming, coming into 2018 as uh, a good replacement at other programs. I know he has, a son that played at BYU. I know he's got a son right now that plays at Utah. And obviously with that Mormon faith, there's clearly roots out in in the state of Utah. So you wonder if uh, maybe he's got his eye out there in Provo, if things don't work out for Kalani Sataki, would he be the next guy to go out there um, and kind of return home? So um, I have Navy as my as my disappointing team for this year in the AAC. And here's another stat that's kind of sad. They've lost 12 straight road games dating back to 2017. So if you can't win on the road automatically right there, you're, you're, you're six wins 
off the board yeah. uh, before anything else is going on. So yeah, so I'm going to go with the middies in that one. And I almost went with them. And similarly to you uh, being a Notre Dame fan, they, they obviously play each other every year. And that's a game that scares me every year. This year, I didn't have that worry as much. Um, playing against a triple option. You never know what to expect, but yeah, this, this Navy team, uh, they were more, uh, disappointing to me offensively than anything. Um, as they returned yeah. Malcolm Perry and Zach AB, uh, two guys that really performed well last year and, uh, had their moments this year, but that, that offense just wasn't, um, wasn't humming nearly as well as it has in the past, but instead no. of, instead of Navy, I thought that I would take a trip down south and go with uh, South Florida. And, South Florida. And, Thank and you let, for the pronunciation. <laughs> let me tell you that they could have used uh, Jadinkalij Mergoon uh, this season as <laughs> the – I thought that the Bulls were going to make some noise and that they could have competed with UCF to be uh, maybe one of those group of five busters. And they started yeah. off pretty well. They won their first seven games and looked like they might be right in there with UCF. Uh, but they then proceeded to lose their next six games in a row, including their bowl loss to Marshall. Taking a deeper dive into their seven wins, there was plenty to give uh, folks caution to to pump the brakes a little bit on the Bulls as those seven wins were uh, against a, a group of teams that finished the season with a combined 28-56 and 56 record with one of the teams, Elon, being an FCS team and accounting for six of those wins. So um, they beat two power five teams, but that was Georgia Tech and Illinois. So uh, neither of those being world beaters. And they lost against all of their conference opponents with a winning record on the season. Um, this is a team that couldn't move the ball well, or that I'm sorry, that could move the ball well um, as they finished 33rd in the country in yards per game, but couldn't convert uh, those scores, those yards into scores as they finished only 70th in the country in points per game. Um, 10 time transfer, Blake Barnett, uh, <laughs> threw for 2,700 yards and a respectable, uh, 61.1% completion percentage, but couldn't avoid the turnover as he had 11 picks to go with his 12 touchdowns. Um, they had a, a shot in the arm at, at running back as, uh, Jordan Cronkite and Johnny Ford provided some consistently good, uh, ground production, um, as they, they, um, both averaged at least 6.1 yards per carry and they combined for 17 touchdowns. But defensively, this was far from what a Charlie strong defense should be. They finished 104th in the country in yards per game allowed 91st in points per game allowed. And um, this really contributed to South Florida averaging the ninth lowest time of possession in the country, which is odd when they gained the 30, uh, 33rd most yards per game in the country, uh, which kind of just tells you that their defense couldn't get them off the field. They actually finished 35th in um, passing yards per game uh, defensively, but rushing, they finished 122nd uh, against the run in the country and also finished 118th in the country in first downs allowed. Um, one more uh, bad defensive stat for them. They punted more than any team in the conference. So taking all those into account, I really thought that USF would have made a lot more noise and been one of those fringe top 25 teams at the end of the season. But man, they just folded like a cheap suit. Yeah, they did. Um, now the, uh, the one highlight was their bowl game or they had more than one highlight, but how good was Randall St. Felix in that bowl game? And I don't, I don't want to steal any of your yeah. thunder, but six catches for 165 yards and two touchdowns against Marshall. That's an average of 27 and a half yards per reception. He was just lights out on fire. So mm -hmm. good things uh, in the future for Charlie Strong in that offense. You hope anyway. Yeah, and and they, if I remember right, they should be returning a decent decent amount on offense. It's more so that defense that they need to. Uh, as Coach Herman Boone would say, you just worry about that defense, Coach. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and you have to believe. I mean, let's face it. Charlie Strong is a very good coach, especially when he's yeah. at this um, non-Power 5 position. So, yeah, look mm -hmm. out for the Bulls to come back and, and charge, pun intended, in uh, in 20, 2019. So um, those are the teams, Bip. Let's get to the players. And you know, we, we kind of highlight our most outstanding players for, for the Power Five. And this group of five 
set of teams needs some love. And, you know, maybe nationally, the, even these most outstanding players are names that might be new to some of our listeners. So who do you have on the offensive side of the ball? Who was outstanding amidst all the, the great offensive stars? Because let's face it, this conference was a conference where points were put up and oh, yards yeah. were racked. Um, so who stood out offensively for you? This was maybe the easiest choice uh, I've had to make or will have to make amongst the conferences in relation to the offensive or defensive side of the ball for most outstanding player. I can't believe that he wasn't named the MVP of the conference, and that's uh, Daryl Henderson from Memphis. Um, Running back that averaged 8.9 yards per carry. Uh, he did the, he accomplished his feat last year as well, but in this year he rushed for 750 more yards in the season on the season. Um, he ran for 1900 yards, um, 22 touchdowns added 295 yards receiving and three touchdowns through the air. Here's where he ranked nationally in the following stats. He was second in rushing yards tied for first in the country in yards per game uh, with Kennedy Brooks and fellow AAC member Greg McRae, but neither of those backs crossed the uh, 1,200-yard mark on the season. He tied for second in rushing touchdowns. He was second in yards from scrimmage, second in touchdowns from scrimmage. He also had eight games in which he rushed for more than 150 yards and 10 games in which he had multiple touchdowns. Um, And his totals could have been even greater, but he left the Missouri game... um, a game in which Memphis rushed for over 200 yards as a team after only four carries due to injury. So um, this was an easy pick for me. He was dominant um, for the Tigers all season long and was one of the big reasons why they put up so many points throughout the season. Yeah, I I agree 100%. And again, my my clap emoji sent out to you. Uh, Daryl Henderson, (laughs) clearly the favorite. Now, the way I looked at it is I think – Technically, the AAC chose their MVP for offense and defense. And so I agree that Mackenzie Milton, who was the AAC MVP, he definitely was more valuable to his team. Right. We saw right. we saw his value accentuated when he went down. And, and no disrespect to Daryl Mack, but he certainly was nowhere near the, the level of play that Mackenzie Milton brought to his entire offense. So, But yeah, in terms of outstanding, and again, Bip and I define outstanding as you watch a team and this guy jumps out at you and you're like, wow, um, this guy could single-handedly carry his offense or his defense alone. And that's what Daryl Henderson did. So, you know, to talk about what you mentioned with Kennedy Brooks and with Greg McRae, Daryl Henderson had more carries. So to the fact that over a, a full season with more games, more carries, he still averaged 8.9 yards per carry. And I think even more remarkable, the fact that he did that last year, he yeah. had a bullseye, and and teams had scouted him and said, okay, we've got to stop number eight, and he still did it. I mean, 8.9 mm-hmm. yards per carry. There are some quarterbacks, there are some receivers who didn't average that throwing the ball through the air, which, logistically speaking, you're naturally going to rack up more yardage, but this guy did it by taking a handoff behind the line of scrimmage, mind you. So really, that 8.9 yards per carry, that means that he's really running about uh, anywhere from 12 to 13, 15 yards per pop and was and was averaging that every play so um, right and also his his teammate uh patrick taylor rushed for over 1100 yards but he only averaged 5.4 yards per carry behind the same offensive line and in the same offense so it really lets you know that uh you know not only was he productive but man was he efficient Yeah, and that whole Memphis offense, I mean, if I'm a defensive coordinator and I have to scout and game plan to stop Daryl Henderson, Tony Pollard, um, uh, like you mentioned, um, uh, the backup. Taylor, Taylor, yes, thank you. I was listening, Bip. Uh, (laughs) And then, um, you know, Coxie, their leading receiver as well. That's yeah. that's a hell of an offense that's going out there. So some may argue that well Henderson had those weapons around him that made him bigger. I I I argue the opposite and say that those other options had better years because they had Daryl Henderson there with them. So mm-hmm. um yeah, and and he had his best games against the AAC's best team and that was UCF. So twice he ran for 199 yards and a touchdown in their first meeting. And then in the AAC championship, 210 rush yards and three touchdowns. And most of that came in the first half. I want to say he had almost 170 in the first half alone out in Orlando for the uh, AAC championship in December. 
Um, mm-hmm. He rushed for 170 yards or more seven times, Bip, uh, yeah. seven times. And he ran for 200 yards or more three times. And that's not including the one game where he ran 199 yards. So one more yard, he would have had four 200-yard games. That's just phenomenal. Exactly. So yeah. when he declared for the NFL draft, I was nowhere near surprised, but I felt bad for, his, for Memphis fans because how – stacked would Memphis have been had they had him back for one more year. They're going to look really good going into 2019, but if they had number eight for one more season back there, I mean, can you imagine a third straight season of averaging eight yards or more per carry? And I think he probably could have done it. Um, so uh, defensively, let me throw out this player to you. And he was not the guy who won defensive MVP, and that is Austin Robinson. And I'm going to make the pitch that this linebacker from the University of Houston really got Uh, jobbed in this one. I think that he was clearly the better all-around defensive player than Nate Harvey from Eastern Carolina. So Robinson, again, a linebacker, outside linebacker, was first in the conference with 128 tackles. 75 of them were solo, so he was very good at tackling in open space. He had six sacks, which was seventh in the conference, 14 tackles for loss, which was also seventh in the conference. He also defended three passes, forced two fumbles, and recovered a fumble. His best games were against Navy, where he had 21 tackles, four and a half tackles for loss, two sacks. That was the most for anybody in any AAC game this year. He also played well against Army, who was an 11-win team, Memphis, who we talked about, and then Arizona, a Power 5 school who just missed the play or just missed the Bulls game this year. Um, mm-hmm. And Interestingly, and I found this out, he started out his career at UT San Antonio as a quarterback. So here's a guy who was um, kind of a mobile quarterback. He transferred over to Houston, put on some bulk, and really played well for the Cougars this year. So he's my pick for most outstanding defensive player. Bip, who's your stopper on that side? Well, I almost uh, went with Robinson, and and man, the the couple linebackers that Houston had this year, Roman Brown was actually second in the conference in tackles. So um, tough to run on the uh, on the Cougars this year with those two men in the middle. Um, uh, I, I so, army would army would beg to differ. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's true. Very true. Um, the uh, I, I also went away from Nate Harvey, which he's also an, inter- uh, an interesting story. Um, in in the fact that uh, this was basically his his only year starting, and mm-hmm. I saw that he had petitioned for another year of eligibility next year, and just a couple of days ago he was actually denied that, denied. Uh, yeah, unfortunately. But right. um, and uh, the reason why I went away from Harvey is because his numbers jump off the page, but taking a deeper look, he recorded half of his sacks in games against old dominion and Yukon yep. uh, recording three in each of those games. And, and that's why I uh, went away from him too. I saw that. Yeah. And, and he also had another, uh, he had four of his tackles for loss against North Carolina A and T. So a lot of his production came against poor opponents, uh, not taking anything majorly away from him, but that made me go towards, uh, the guy that I picked Richie Grant, uh, safety yep. from UCF. That's a great and pick. he led the team in tackles with 108, and uh, also led the team in solo tackles with 68, which tied for 26th in the country amongst all positions. Um, so taking into the fact that that happened from the safety position, really impressive. He finished uh, third and tied for third in the country with six interceptions. Also added three passes defended, two forced fumbles, one fumble recovery. And he had some of his best games against the Knights' toughest opponents. He had 16 tackles against Navy, which not the best opponent that they played this year by uh, by any stretch. But against the triple option, sound tackling and great safety play is important. And Richie Grant stepped up in a huge way against a midshipman. Also recorded 12 tackles against Cincy, 8 tackles and a pick against Pitt, and picked up 7 tackles and, a, and another interception, uh, as well as a pass defended in their close game against Temple. So um, easy to pick uh, Richie Grant for me, and I think that he's going to have another huge year next year for the Knights. Yeah, and, and I seriously was was hair-triggered to go with him because I, I loved watching him play in the secondary for UCF, and I'm glad to see that he'll be coming back this year. I think he may mm-hmm. be one of, the, one of the most underrated defensive players, and I really hope that some publications will put him on their preseason All-American team, at least at maybe third team, if not maybe higher. Um, kind of right. reminds me a 
little bit of a Grant Delpit, somebody who's a good tackler, but also a pretty good pass defender as well. Somebody who's going to protect that middle. Um, definitely somebody who I could see playing on Sundays and being one of those quote unquote steals of the draft that you look at and you're like, man, this guy is is one of the um, the bookends for this this team's defense. Yeah, yeah. So now we get to the off the radar players, and of course, people could make the argument that quote-unquote, all of these AAC players or all of these Group of Five <laughs> players are off the radar. But for those who are true college football fans and encyclopedists like you and I are, Bip, um, we know that there are stars and there are guys who make first and second team all-conference, but we're going to touch on some of the guys who maybe were not first team or maybe not even second team either. So I'm going to start with offense. And the first guy that I wrote down was James Prochet from SMU. Now, I had to go away with uh, away from him because – if you ask any team that played against SMU and scouted against him, they would say, how can you say that this guy's under the radar? This guy is really, really good. Yeah. He's, he's multifaceted. And so after uh, digging a little bit deeper, I decided that it would be a little bit too easy and maybe out of character to go with Prochet. So I'm going to go with David Pindell from UConn. Now, he was their quarterback for a 1-11 football team. But mm-hmm. he was the fourth leading rusher in the American Athletic Conference. He ran yeah. for 1,134 yards, 10 touchdowns. He averaged 5.3 yards per carry, um, 94.5 yards per game rushing. He also was eighth in the conference in passing efficiency at 59%. He threw 19 touchdowns um, and averaged 163 yards per game. So that put him with his rushing totals. He was number four in the conference in total offense per game. So for such a, a, uh, a low team in terms of productivity and in terms of their fortunes, I mean, they were really right there with Louisville in terms of uh, teams you just <laughs> felt sorry for this year in college football. Right. Pindell did a, a really good job, and I think he ran that offense pretty well and and really didn't get a lot of love. And I remember watching a couple of UConn games this year, uh, most notably the one against UCF in the opening weekend, and um, I was like, man, this quarterback for UConn's really good. They might have a chance to um, sneak a few games this year, but then I didn't realize how porous and how poor their defense was going to be. Um, of note, they were literally the worst defense in college football history with their statistics <laughs> this year. So you've got to think. Yeah, so you're, if you're your Pindell on the just a bit outside, just a bit outside. <laughs> yep. So Q Bob Euchre, but um, you got to think if you're Pindell on the sideline and you see, you know, you get off the field after scoring a touchdown, and then your defense gives up a touchdown, you're like, God dang it, what do I got to do, man? Come on. Yeah. Or on the, or on the flip side, you're like, Well, I know I'm going to see the field a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, right. <laughs> but yeah, the fact that he completed 59 percent of his passes and uh, a 19 to thir- uh, 19 to 13 touchdown to interception ratio might not seem great. But when you consider how many uh, bad spots he was put in and how many times UConn had to play from behind, that's really kind of a remarkable number um, in the fact that he's playing from behind and really trying to dig his team out of a lot of holes. So I like that pick. I I almost went with Pindell um, because he was really the only good note when I was researching uh, UConn. Mm -hmm. Um, I I also had a couple other guys. Randall St. Felix was one that I um, thought about average 20.6 yards per game, four touchdowns, uh, playing receiver for USF. Also um, looked at Isaiah Wright, and no, not the troubled running back from last chance. (laughs) And I had to look at that two or three times to make sure that that wasn't the same guy. I'm like, are you kidding me? This guy's actually on a football team? I mean, you talk talk about a a cancer, you know, no disrespect to to the disease, but... uh. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and and, uh, that Isaiah Wright, or this Isaiah Wright, finished 18th in the country in yards per kick return, 12th in the country in yards per punt return, scored three times on uh, uh, returns, combined but yeah he was, I'm most he was electric see, yeah who i'm excited most excited to see next year and who i think might be a little underrated um entering the the end of 2018 is anthony russo quarterback from temple yep he was erratic at times uh but is a first time starter and gives temple a lot to like for the 2019 season. Now he finished with 14 interceptions to his 14 touchdowns and only a 57.4 completion percentage, but he finished with over 2,500 passing yards and had his best game of the season against UCF in which he threw for 444 yards and four touchdowns and was a main reason as to why the Knights had one of their biggest scares of the season. Against AAC opponents, Russo completed over 60% of his passes and had a 12-10 to touchdown-to-interception ratio while going 6-1. and 
And this was all while sitting out Temple's last game of the regular season due to an injury against UConn, in which the Owls won 57-7. to So his stats could have been even better uh, had he played that game. But yeah. Anthony Russo is someone that I'm definitely going to be looking for next year and think that folks across the country should keep an eye out for as well. Yeah, he was honestly one of my favorite players to watch. I just love his grit, his toughness. I love the way that he plays the game. And, and I think he really personifies that tough Philly attitude that they yeah. talk so much about. Mostly among mm-hmm. themselves. <laughs> uh, what about defensive bit? Who who's off the radar for you that should be maybe spotlighted a little bit more? Well, um, Sean Williams from Navy jumped out at me. Eighty-five tackles, fifty-six total. Uh, total also had five passes defended, five forced fumbles, which was impressive. But I decided to go with t- uh, another UCF player, uh, Titus <laughs> Davis, uh, defensive end from uh, Central Florida. He had sixty-six tackles this year, seventeen tackles for loss, six and a half sacks, two forced fumbles, one fumble recovery. He had at least half a tackle for loss in all but one game this year, and in their one of their biggest games of the year against. Cincinnati. He recorded three sacks and a forced fumble. Um, so the the fact that he was able to rack up so many tackles from the defensive end position, but also make them meaningful tackles with the 17 tackles for loss. Um, I think that he was someone that slid under my radar anyways, um, and really jumped out of the page when I started to look at the stat sheets. Yep. Uh, I think that's a good pick. And, and of course you can't go wrong picking a, a knight from UCF. <laughs> that's right. Um, so Bip, I'm going to give you some stats here, and you tell me where this would likely land even somebody from the AAC, no disrespect. 45 tackles, two and a half tackles for loss, and a half of a sack. Where would you put him, first, second team, or honorable mention? Uh, he might even be left off for me, Chappie. <laughs> okay. Well, this young man that I'm talking about, Perry Young from Cincinnati, was placed on the first team all AACC defense. First team. So my point is there are some guys who were on the second team and honorable mention who uh, I think had better seasons and better stats than this guy. So I'm going to go with, uh, and I'm shouting out my, my, one of my favorite nephews, Cooper, Cooper Edmiston for Tulsa. I like it. Had, he was, uh, he was honorable mention AAC. He had 113 tackles, which was second in the conference. He was fourth or a second in interceptions as a linebacker, mind you, with four of them. Yeah. He had five forced fumbles, which was fourth in the conference. He was third in fumble recoveries. So, you know, doesn't didn't have the the sack or total for law or tackle for loss numbers, but again, neither did Perry Young, who was first team. And um, you know, I think that, you know, for Tulsa, who finished at three and nine this year, he was one of the the brighter spots and watching a couple of Tulsa games on the AAC Thursday and Friday night games that we got to see on ESPN this year. He was somebody who really stuck out for Tulsa, had a big game in their near upset of then undefeated USF. Um, he also played well against Houston and, um, you know, really got left off those first and second teams. And so giving love to Cooper Edmiston for Tulsa. And another guy that I went with who I thought maybe should have been over Perry Young from Cincinnati on that first team, all AC, all AEC. By the way, Perry Young only played in eight games as well. Now, some people might look at that and say, well, um, maybe he's he was that good that teams ran away from him. And he was good. He had over 100 tackles last year for the Bearcats. But, um, I mean, I could see it for someone like Rhett or um, – Devin Bush for the University of Michigan, where teams mm-hmm. are trying to go away from him, but he still racked up, I think, like 60 tackles this year, 70 tackles. Um, still was a, a menace in the backfield. I really don't think that uh, that was the case for Mr. Young. So Bryce Huff from Memphis and all of my rambling here, that's who I was going with as another guy to keep an eye on um, in terms of off the radar. Now he was a senior, so he's going, um, he's moving on after this year, but Huff did a, a good job creating havoc. He had nine and a half sacks, which was third in the conference, yep. 19 tackles for loss, which was second in the conference, five of them alone against two lanes. So both those guys, but I'm going to give my nod to Cooper Edmiston from Tulsa. Yeah. And I had both of those guys written down as well for, for each respective team. And, and Edmiston was really the, the lone highlight for, for Tulsa this year. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I mean, keep an eye out for Tulsa. There, I've already seen in some publications that that could be a surprise team out of the American Athletic Conference for next year because they do return a good amount. I know that they've got a young quarterback coming back, um, and I like what uh, Coach Blankenship is doing out there in Tulsa, and I think he's got a program going in the right direction, but he's going to be a coach that's going to need to produce or he's going to be shown the door in, uh, in Oklahoma this year. 
Yeah. So what about coach of the year, Chappie? Well, I think it's uh, pretty obvious, and we're probably going to agree on this because we gushed on him in our surprise, and that's going to be Luke Fickle. So from yep. the University of Cincinnati, uh, kind of already mentioned it, he was 10-15 and 15 coming into this season, so not really a glorified head coach in terms of his record, but um, he won seven more games than he did last season. Uh, they started the year 6-0. and he, he got Cincinnati back into the top rankings, and really this was the most buzz that we've heard about the Bearcats since your Brian Kelly left um, UC, oh, yeah. and, and even uh, even Butch Jones, <laughs> who kind of rode right. the coattails a little bit. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think not only was was Fickle in charge of this program getting better on offense, but defensively, um, he's going to want to do everything he can to hang on to Marcus Freeman, his defensive coordinator, because that's a name who's going to be out there and and yeah. shopped around by programs who are looking to steal someone from a mid major and bring him on to their staff to maybe duplicate what fickle has done this year at, at uh in cincinnati so i yeah, think it's probably I, your your pick as well yeah i, I respect what josh heupel did and, and was able to do this year you know he yeah, inherited he a lot of talent however you know they lost four guys that were drafted and, and some other quality talent as well and it's never easy to follow up an undefeated season as a first time head coach um, but if, if Mackenzie Milton had missed a little more time and UCF had finished uh, the uh, regular season undefeated, I would have been more uh, likely to give Hypo the nod, but um, couldn't take away from going four and eight to 11 and two like Fickle did. Yep. Agreed. And, you know, again, all the points that you hit on, I think it was admirable for Heupel. They got as high as number seven and it's not easy. I mean, people will say, well, he inherited a great group of talent. Well, I think sometimes that's more challenging is to keep that talent, keep it going in the right direction. And uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's even more pressure on Heupel than there was on, um, you know, Scott Frost for doing it in the first place. Right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's quickly go through. There were a lot of entertaining games in the AAC this year, mainly from an offensive standpoint. But Bip, give us um, one of the games that stood out to you as as one of the most exciting in this conference. Well, I'll start off with uh, the UCF Knights winning thirty one thirty over the Memphis Tigers, their first matchup of the season, and yep. this one was kind of uh, um, a little back and forth. Um, Memphis kind of held the edge over the Knights for uh, the majority of the game and seemed to have a good grasp on it. However, UCF scored the last three scores of the game, a field goal and two touchdowns, including the only points scored in the second half of the game as Memphis was shut out in the third and fourth quarter. Um, So UCF scored with 12-14 left to go in the fourth, and there really wasn't a whole lot to be done after that. so uh, giving giving UCF one of the biggest scares of the season um, was unfortunate um, that the Tigers couldn't come away with that one as it seemed like they had this game well within their grasp, uh, but definitely an entertaining one to uh, in the middle of the season um, as it was around the sixth or seventh game of the year. Yeah, I agree. I, I think both of those matchups were really good, and that one was uh, was fun because it came down to the wire, and Memphis had a chance to go down down by a point um, to try and kick a field goal, and just couldn't um, make the offense work enough to get in that position. So credit to the UCF defense. I'm going to mm-hmm. go, and of course, this is not in chronological order, but I'm going to go with Navy and Tulane, and Tulane ended up pulling off a 29-28 victory toward the end of the game. Now, uh, the reason I bring this up, it doesn't seem like it jumps off the page to most college football fans, but Tulane led 21-3 at the half and then gave up 25 consecutive points to a struggling Navy football team. This was toward the end of the year. Um, So they were down 21-28 with two minutes and 11 seconds left. Justin McMillan, who was an LSU transfer, quarterback for Tulane, connected with Jatavian Tolls for a 26-yard touchdown with just a buck 27 to go in the game. And head coach for Tulane, Willie Fritz, looked at his AD, Troy Dannon, and said, we're going for two. And um, they went for two and kind of a little bit of a trick play where they rolled to one side and then threw back across the grain and and converted on the two-point play. They then stopped Navy on four consecutive plays, which included a couple fumbles that were both recovered by Navy, but at that point it was too far and too late. So that sealed the victory. And the reason I bring this up is not only that did Tulane win the uh, the game to become bowl eligible for only the fifth time in school history. But this is the second straight year that this game came down to a two-point conversion. So in 2017, Tulane went for two and missed it. And that 
win would have put them in a bowl game, but being in the last game of the season that uh, left them with only five victories. So uh, exciting game from, from a, uh, a nail biting standpoint, Bip. Uh, tell us about Cincinnati and Temple as our next game. Yeah. So this one, the Bearcats went into this game six and O going up against Temple Temple go, uh, jumped out to a 10 nothing lead, and that was uh, soon tied by Cincinnati in the second quarter at 10. Cincinnati then goes up 17-10, and Temple uh, scores with 49 seconds left to go in the fourth quarter and end up scoring um, in, the, in overtime in this one to win 24-17 over Cincinnati in overtime. As I mentioned, that was Cincinnati's first loss of the season and was really one of the uh, key wins for Temple on the year as they just continued to, to uh, build on that momentum for, throughout the majority of the rest of the season. Yep, and uh, your boy Isaiah, don't call me last chance you right, scored the game-winning <laughs> touchdown in overtime for the Owls. Yep, 25-yard touchdown pass from uh, the other guy that I mentioned, Anthony Russo. Yep, <laughs> Russo. <laughs> um, so then uh, the last game to touch on was, of course, Memphis-UCF Part 2, at least of, of 2018 anyway, and that's really become an, a fun and interesting rivalry that um, is, is great to watch, great college football. So UCF came from behind again and won 56-41, but in the first half it really looked like Memphis was going to take control and run away with this thing out in Orlando. Orlando in UCF's home field. So they were down 17 points at halftime. And Daryl Mack, of course, was the quarterback. Mackenzie Milton was injured against UC or USF in the week prior. Um, and Mack had two crucial fumbles early in the first half, but came back strong and finished with 348 passing yards, two touchdowns, and three rushing touchdowns. So five touchdowns for the freshman in relief of the MVP Milton. Greg McRae had 206 rushing yards and a touchdown. And this was, like I said, the second time that they came back against this strong Memphis offense. And of course, this one was the bigger game in the AAC championship. And UCF fought off um, a big first half, as we mentioned, from Daryl Henderson, who had 156 yards um, and, uh, in that first half and a couple touchdown runs. So that, was, that marked the 25th straight victory for the Knights. And unfortunately for them and their fans, that was the last one because in the bowl game, they got knocked off by LSU. But still, a remarkable streak to win 25 in a row, regardless of who you are, regardless of who you play. Yeah. So where does the AAC rank in terms of our scope of conference powers, Bip? I know you and I had talked about this, but tell our listeners where they are for you and why. I like them at number six and the the number one of the group of five conferences and i like them better than the mount west um the the mount west for me was their biggest competition and it's mainly because the mount west conference is so top heavy um i also like uh, teams like memphis houston and south florida uh despite their year-end records compared to the middle of the mount west conference mm-hmm. uh middle tier teams both conferences had five teams with at least eight wins and i like fresno boise and utah state collectively over ucf cincinnati and either memphis or houston um but the aac also had or or, i'm sorry and the the ac the aac also had the worst team in football in uconn um (laughs) but i do like houston usf uh temple and tulane over teams like nevada hawaii and san diego state and as i mentioned before i like the bottom of the AAC better than that of the Mount West Conference. Um, Conference USA rivaled both conferences this year as well, but while they had six eight-plus win teams, I don't really think that any of the the top teams from Conference USA could could play and and hang with the Mount West or the um, American Athletic Conference. So because of that, the AAC gets number six for me. Yeah, and I thought it was also cool. The, the conference had eight wins against Power 5 teams, so Teams from the wow. AAC beat. Um, they were they had four wins against the ACC, two mm-hmm. wins against the Big Ten, and two wins against the Pac-12. Of course, this is in regular season play, and those um, that fell to the American Athletic Conference were teams like UCLA, Arizona, Georgia Tech, North Carolina, Maryland, Illinois, Pitt, and Virginia Tech. So, kudos to this quote-unquote mid-major conference for stacking up pretty well against the Power Five. Um, yeah. Did you also know that? The AAC had two teams in the top six in terms of defensive touchdowns. Temple 
Temple had eight defensive touchdowns this year, which led the nation. That's astounding. I mean, there are some programs mm-hmm. that don't get eight defensive touchdowns in eight years. Houston had four of them, and they were number six nationally. So, um, yeah, I agree. I think that this is definitely the top of the group of five conferences. I think it was also one of the most entertaining conferences to watch this year, and I'm already looking forward to watching AAC play um, during the middle of the week on Thursday and Friday nights, and I think that uh, college football being played on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday is awesome. Um, anybody who says that it's an oversaturation of games and it draws it out too long um, politely needs to be slapped in the face and uh, <laughs> you know leave the conversation. <laughs> yeah, and, and as, as entertaining as this conference is, they're kind of like the Big 12 of the group of five because um, a lot of publicity goes towards the poor defenses of the Big 12. But, Chappie, you want to guess how many AAC teams were in the bottom 16 teams in the country in first downs given up this year? Um... Well, there's 12 teams, so I'm going to say five. Six. Wow. Temple, South Florida, UCF, Memphis, UConn, and Houston all gave up amongst the tops, or the, the bottom 16 in first downs allowed this year defensively. Additionally, six teams finished in either the bottom 30 of the uh, defensively for points per game given up or yards per game given up defensively. Um, and three teams finished within the bottom, bottom 30 of both categories. So, um, uh, Definitely an entertaining um, conference, but outside of teams like Cincinnati, they uh, need to go back to the drawing board and learn to play a little defense. Sure. Now, one last question for you, Bip. Um, In 2017, UCF went undefeated, um, and they claimed themselves national champs. Now, let me ask you, do you think that they were legitimized in dubbing themselves as national champs? I think they can call themselves whatever they want. Uh, <laughs> the 2007 uh, Missouri team. <laughs> the 2007 Missouri team was called national champions by Anderson and Hester, despite mm-hmm. the fact that they went. Uh, they had two losses. Texas A&M, as you mentioned in one of our previous podcasts, never admits to losing. They just ran out of time. Yep. Doesn't mean those things are true. Um, you know, there's, there's teams in, in history, like the 1998 Tulane team that finished 12 and 0, but only mm-hmm. finished number seven. And if you look at that schedule, I, th- I don't think anyone would argue that they had a claim to being uh, part of the national championship picture. Even 2004, Auburn would have a claim to the national championship with USC, but I don't think that the Utah team from that year does, um, as I don't think that Utah that year would have beaten USC, Oklahoma, or Auburn. Similarly, I don't think that UCF would have beaten um, Alabama, and, and you could have an argument against uh, some of the other three from that playoff, but I would, if I were a betting man, I wouldn't bet for UCF against any of those other three. No. Um, not all undefeateds are created equal, and um, I don't think that because UCF was the only undefeated team when the dust settled means that they were the best team in the country. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think that it's uh, they have somewhat of a right to to declare themselves national champs. Now, does that mean that they are the national champs? No. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it's beyond obvious that Alabama would have beaten them in 2017. And if you take offense to that, UCF fans, uh, just take solace in the fact that you did everything you were asked to do. And, um, you know, I, I kind of liken it to this analogy, Bip. When I played baseball as a youngster and through uh, middle school and high school, I I made all-star teams. So I was a baseball mm-hmm. all-star. Mike Trout is a baseball all-star. Aaron Judge is a baseball, baseball all-star. Does that mean that I'm on the same level as them? Hell no. But can I call myself an all-star? Yes, because I did what was asked of me. And, I, and I'm and i not talking about like some four-team rec league, uh, city league all-star team where everybody gets a juice box and a ribbon and a trophy and go get your hot dog. I mean, I, I legitimately earned it. So, um, But at the same time, what I consider myself – and it's the same uh, token as uh, one of the, the greatest guys that I've ever played football with, uh, Pat Kavanaugh was an all-state football player for our 1998 uh, high school football team. Now, was he as good or was he as the same level of all-state player as some of those guys that went on to play Division One college football? No, but the fact that um, he did what was asked and he earned that right, I think that it's okay for UCF to declare themselves two, 2017 national champs, um, but maybe you could uh, clarify that and say that they were a tier two national champion, if you will. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, just not hurting anyone. I don't have any major problem with them hanging the banner, with them having the parade celebration. Right. Um, the only problem that I have with it is when they get into, uh, whether it's the university or UCF fans, getting into a debate of whether they were legitimized by saying that they were the national champs because Alabama had a loss during the season. That's when I get take a little offense mm-hmm. to it. But no, if they want to go in and have that uh, – that arbitrary title by all means. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so that's going to wrap it up for us here. Bip, it's time to take a knee. Uh, did you hear that coach Cristobal? Take it to a knee. Preserve victory <laughs> for the night. Don't run it one more time. We're not going to go overboard and, and risk fumbling and losing this. Uh, w- the good thing that we have, we're going to take it to a knee. We're going to end it here. So we're all going to, we're going to thank you for listening, especially those who are back again. We hope you got what you were wanting out of this podcast. And if the jury's still out, tune in later in the week for our next podcast where we'll give you even more. One thing's for sure, though, we're always going to have a lot of information for you to help get you your fix until week zero's kickoff, which, by the way, is only 23 short weeks away. Love it, Bip. Um, We strongly hope that you continue to listen. But more importantly, spread the word and help us be heard. Please share. Please let people know to tune in and, and see what they think. It's only going to get better from now until that week zero kickoff. So um, let us know what you like or what you want to hear. And like a fine chef, we want to cater our specialty and make it to your liking. So thanks for listening to A Bowl Full of Chips. I am Chappie. And I am Pip. And remember, biggest isn't always best. So thank you for choosing the right over the rest. Sayonara, butt face!